And that's what I can always encourage people to do is like, if you really want to like manifest your life in, in the direction that you want it to go and you want things to work out for you, treat everyone around you as an equal and lift them up. Because you never know when people that are coming into your life might have a huge impact on your life. Hello friends, that's my longtime friend Ian McIntosh, one of the staples in men's free skiing for over a decade. I'm so excited to share this conversation that we recorded while attending the recent Protect Our Winter Summit. Ian had a huge impact on me when I was starting out in the industry, as well as other ski athletes coming up, both men and women. But it's McIntosh's attitude that's so spot on. It's no surprise he's kept his career going for the long term in a tough sport that doesn't come with a manual. We cover a wide range of topics, from life to politics, to sponsors, to growing up, and taking the opportunities that show up. This is an awesome conversation. I know you'll enjoy it. Ian, it's Ian McIntosh. Hey, how's it going? Hanging out in my hotel room. (laughs) And um, he's getting on an airplane at like four in the morning. So we're hanging out at 9.30 at night. He's been talking all day long because that's what he does. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a very outspoken person. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why I invited you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like to talk. So so I guess since you don't have too much time... um, you know, the structure that I often follow is tell us your story. Like people want to know how you got to be Ian McIntosh that we know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a big part of that is that I was very fortunate to grow up where I did with the family that I had. And that was in the interior of BC, a town called Invermere, um, which to those hardcore skiers that know we're kicking horse mountain resort, it's like the next town to the South, about an hour, hour and a half drive. Um, I grew up skiing and my parents are both really active, um, and, um, you know, huge into the backcountry touring scene. And how big was that town? Uh, at that time it was probably about 3,500 people. And then it would kind of, it was more of a summer town. It would explode in the summer cause it was a lake town. Uh, and so the population would really explode, but we had uh, panorama ski hill mm-hmm. was, was our, our hill there. And it was a great hill to grow up ski racing on. It's 4,900 vertical feet, but doesn't get a lot of snow. Doesn't have a ton of like super rad terrain for free riding or anything like that. But, you know, growing up racing there and, you know, getting the fundamentals for, for skiing through racing, and then having my family like constantly pushing me into the backcountry, and my dad always taking me out to the the, the um, huts that we had around the Purcells for multiple day trips and stuff like that. And my dad at the time was the president of the Columbia Hut Association, so he kind of ran all these huts. And um, so we were, you know, very much a big part of our our lifestyle. And my mom was like a level three ski instructor uh, when she was younger. Her entire family lived in Fernie, and so I would spend like holidays in Fernie, Christmas, always going to Fernie, and my whole Fernie family is like ripping ragers. Like, two of my cousins were like published in Powder Magazine many times, and um, you know, my one cousin worked at Island Lake Lodge and still does as a guide, and he guided like the fetish crew with Seth Morrison and, the, and Craig Kelly and all those guys back in the day, and and you know, for me as like someone who was much younger than them, I really looked up to them Mm -hmm. and they were like, you know, it was pretty eye opening what they were doing and they were legends in the Fernie community, which to me was like the epicenter of skiing at the time. Is that the side you got the redhead from? The ginger? Uh, My mom was the only ginger in her family and my dad was one of the only gingers in his family. Oh my God, you're two gingers? Yeah, both parents. I mean, my dad, I I don't even barely remember him with red hair. He's been a silver fox for as long (laughs) as I can recall, but... You know, they they both, you know, were gingers when they met and um, and have the ginger blood. So, yeah, my brother and I didn't stand a chance. But everyone on my mom's side of the family, no other gingers. Um, but, but, yeah, those guys really influenced me. And um, my cousin being a guide and, and, you know, me being so, you know, into the backcountry, I quit ski racing and just wanted to ski pow. And, you know, I always had these visions of like, oh, what would it be like to be a pro skier? And, you know, I watched the ski movies back in the day, the Matchstick and, and um, TGR films and, and even more Miller films when I was super young and stuff like that. And, and you know, I always kind of wondered about that, but I was really pursuing a guiding life. Mm-hmm. And 
when I graduated high school, I did move to Fernie for a year and just ski bummed. Like I worked as like a night janitor, you know, just such a ski bomb, like made no money, didn't care, just skied every day. And then, you know, Fernie was starting to like kind of blow up at that time and it was getting kind of busy. And I was like, oh, it's too busy here. I need to go somewhere else. And Kicking Horse just opened their new gondola that they have now. And so I moved to Golden to ski Kicking Horse the next season. And that was much better. It was like definitely no crowds. We were kind of opening up all the terrain there because mm-hmm. it was all fresh and brand new. Um, not that it hadn't been skied by people before, but to us it was lift access. Yeah, really. it was lift access now, and and we were able to start like really figuring out all that terrain for ourselves, you know. But Golden's a much rockier place and doesn't have quite the snowpack. So and the town really didn't work for me either. And but I was also working that uh, winter as like a tail guide for Purcell Heli Skiing. And my dad was good friends with Rudy Gurch, who owns Purcell Heli Skiing. And I grew up ski racing with Jeff Gurch, who's Rudy's son. And Jeff is one of the guides. And so I kind of had a really good in. So I basically did, I did ski tech work for them and, uh, and tail guided. And I did about 40 days in the helicopter that winter. So that was a really cool experience. Yeah. And that summer, I was like, okay, now what? Now what am I going to do? I was like, I don't want winter to stop. So, and I've told this story many times, but I basically, I sold my truck and my mountain bike and everything that I had that I could sell. And I went to New Zealand, uh, moved to Wanaka. For, How old are you at this point? That was 18, so 19, just turning 19. Oh, wow. You had a lot of experience by 19. Yeah, a fair bit, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I was at that time I was still like, you know, I just want, I knew I just wanted to ski. So did you have all the certs, you know, as far as yeah, guiding Yeah, I had my certs? like Canadian ops level one and I had my, you know, my, um, first responder, first aid and all, all that sort of stuff to kind of, you know, which allowed me to work as a tail guide. And, mm-hmm. and I was really like, all right, my next step is going to be my AVI two. Once I get a bit more experience in Canada, AVI two is like the the you know the hardest and the 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 biggest course that you can get in the avi world um acmg and and for me i i wanted to you know really pursue that lifestyle i was like i'm gonna do rigging for rescue courses and all these sorts of things but first thing i need to like just ski all the time so i moved to new zealand um i moved into a hostel when i first moved there endless winter yeah and I remember when I first got to town, I was like, I just need to meet people. So I just went to the bar my first night and just like started meeting people. Like I wanted to, you know, have friends because I went there by myself and I wanted to figure out who are all the shredders around here. You know, I eventually made some pretty cool friends, some guys from the States and, and other Canadians and stuff. There's a good contingency and, and Kiwis as well. And uh, and had a super amazing winter uh, skiing at Trouble Cone. And then... The back in those days, there was the contest called the World Heli Challenge, yeah, which is like a heli access contest. You would do one day of like big mountain, one day of Chinese downhill, and one day of like free ride where you're you know, you build all the jumps and then you can kind of do like a backcountry slope style event. Um, and I was like, oh, I should go in this contest just for fun, you know. And like a lot of the guys that I'd met around were, you know, some of them were entering into it and the entry fee was like $1,500 or something Whoa. like that. And I didn't have it. I kind of spent all my money, but all the while I got a job working at, um, the local, one of the local new bars as a bouncer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I remember when I went for that interview, I showed up in like a big down jacket and I'm a tall guy. Right. But I wasn't ever like jacked or anything like that. <laughs> and they gave me the job. And then I remember when I showed up for the job, I was in like the t-shirt that they give me the collared shirt or whatever that they gave me for the job. And I can remember them just looking up me up and down and being like, wow, you're not as big as we thought you were. <laughs> but they knew that I was like a pretty personable guy. And the other three bouncers were just big Maori dudes, maybe not quite as personable. And so they just had me work the door. And, you know, I was just the meter and greeter of people. And if I ever had an issue, I had the big boys who backed me up. So anyway, I got that bar to sponsor me mm. and pay my entry fee nice. into the contest. And, uh, and it's kind of funny because they paid my entry fee, but then I basically quit the job to go do the contest because <laughs> it was a couple weeks long and I never went back to the job. <laughs> so I don't know if it really worked out in their favor. And, and uh, But yeah, anyway, I did the contest. It went pretty well. Um, I was fifth overall after all three days. Nice. And, uh, a, you know, a few of the guys like Pierre-Yves LeBlanc and Ryan Oakton and, you know, some of these other guys were... 
you know, doing really well in the contest. Leif Zafgil, like these are all names that like most people probably won't recognize in the ski industry anymore. But back then they were really crushing the contest tour and I knew who they were. Um, and so anyway, they were all Whistler guys and me being a Kootenai guy, I was always like, you know, F Whistler, like it's too busy out there. <laughs> like I don't need to go there. Like I'm going to stick to the Kootenays. I'm a Kootenays boy. You know, all the while, though, I always had the ocean calling to me, you know, like, so the coast definitely had its, its draw and its attraction. And basically, those guys were like, they were starting their own movie production company back then called Pimpin' Frogs Production, which was a super small, like, Whistler, French, French-Canadian production company. And they're like, dude, move to Whistler, you'll be in our ski movies, and, you know, you probably can make it pro and, and get sponsored and all this sort of things. And I was like, all right, well, that sounds like a good time. I should definitely check this out. And, you know, worst case scenario, I'll just, you know, check it out for a year or two. And if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to my guiding deal and pursuing that. So anyway, I got back to Canada that fall. I was broke. Had no money, no car, no nothing. I worked super hard for three months and I moved to Whistler. It was like December 14th. Like, FYI, if you're moving to Whistler, don't ever do it on December 14th. <laughs> There's no housing left there. Like, you want to you wanna be established months before that. But one of my other buddies that I had made good friends with that lived in Fernie had moved there. And I reached out to him, Matt Elliott. And he's like, yeah, dude, well, you know, like I can hook you up with a place to stay for a, for a little while because I'm going home for Christmas. And he's like, you can crash in my room at my place. And so I roll into town. He picks me up. I crash in his room at his place. By the time he gets back from his Christmas holiday, I was like, dude, there's nowhere to live. And... I've just cleaned out this closet underneath the stairs and turns out I can fit in there pretty good. I got my sleeping bag. And <laughs> so I ended up moving into his closet and like paid him like 200 bucks a month that winter to live there. I ended up scoring a job at like summit ski to uh, tuning skis. Nice. Um, and again, just like super ski bum winter filmed a bit, made it in their first ski film had like four shots in their ski film or something and it was like this cool experience like I'm in a ski movie you know and then yeah next year I kind of pursued that again and all the while I'm like all right I got to get into this contest tour and the contest tour at the time was there was a stop in Whistler and so that was my entry into the contest tour you could do the qualifier and try and get into the world tour the first couple years I did this stuff I would like do super well like the one year I won the qualifier and you know, I got into the finals and the first day of the finals, I was like tied with Hugo Harrison and now I'm in the like super final and I'm tied with Hugo and I would just like go balls out and explode, you know, and like end up with a concussion or bleeding or something. And I was like, you know, I just didn't have the recipe figured out. And, and uh, I was like, man, these contests are so like tough and like so challenging and there's so much competition and it's so hard to compete with these guys. But then Hugo kind of like, after a couple of years of watching me do this, pulled me aside and P.Y. LeBlanc as well. And they were like, dude, ski at 80% mm. and stay on your feet and you'll do really well. Yeah. Next year, started skiing at 80%, placed second overall on the world tour after doing the full world tour. And that year I really, like that was 2004, and I really just like made it to every contest because I podiumed the contest before. I didn't mm-hmm. have any money, but I was like, all right, if I'm going to make it to the next contest and get an overall standing on this world tour, I've got to get on the podium here. And that was like more motivation to stay on my feet and mm-hmm. not F it up. The long know? game versus the... Yeah, the long game instead of just like going charging for mm-hmm. it, right? And so anyway, ended up second overall on the world tour. Next year, same sort of thing, consistency, ended up third overall on the world tour you know, won sick bird awards and, and stuff like that. And that year, uh, my roommate, Dana Flair, and another good friend of mine, Ryan Oakton, who I also knew from ski racing and from Fernie days, because Ryan was from Fernie, they had both got an opportunity to film with TGR because they had, like, the right sponsors, and they got, you know, they got the opportunity to go with TGR. And anyway, Dana had thrown in a really good word for me. They're like, hey, you know what? Like, there's this guy, he's, like... He's got like a Hugo Harrison style, but with his own flair. And I think he'd be really like what you guys are needing at TGR. You know, Nobis is kind of on his way out. You need someone to kind of step into that role. 
I guess the hard charging ginger roll, if you want to call it. Um, <laughs> Who can drink anyone under the table? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For better or worse. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But I like to think I run a little bit tighter show. Anyway. You do, for sure. Um, for sure. But anyway. Uh, He's been sober for a month, folks. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's just choice. It's not like you got in trouble. It's just. Yeah, no. I mean. He's an athlete. Yeah. I mean, you know, at TGR, we've got the whole model, like tight, loose, right? You know, you got to run a really tight program. We're not afraid to get loose, but you got to make sure that you're running a tight show. And, and it's really balancing. Life's all about balance with everything, right? Yeah. And talk so, about that a little bit. I mean, you, you, we know you love to party. You're good at it. But yeah. right now you're not drinking. So tell me about what the the thinking is behind all that. Well, I, I think more than I like to party, I'm a social creature. Mm-hmm. I like interacting with people. I like meeting people. I like having good conversations. And, you know, par- the party atmosphere is a great place to do this. And, and it's all about, like, being social in that environment, right? And so I'm, I'm really into that. I like that. And, and um, that's definitely a big part of me. But I am an athlete, or at least, you know, I try and be one. And... <laughs> um, so for me, it's, it's about finding balance. And anytime I feel like the balance is getting a little bit out of whack, like, you know, in the fall, it's really tough for us skiers because we're doing film right. tours and there's, you know, athlete summits and there's all these social events to yeah, go to. Yeah, just tell us. I mean, just in the last, like, two months, tell us the things that you, you've had to be on the road for. Well, you know, you go to Jackson for our premiere week, which is like a week long of, um, you know, social gatherings. And then from there, we go to Salt Lake. And then I go back home. And then I went to Seattle for the premieres, which was a couple nights there. And then I go to San Fran. And then I do the North Face Athlete Summit. And now I'm here at the POW Athlete Summit. And I'm heading to New York and Boston. At 4.30. Yeah, and 4.30 in the morning. So somewhere in there, you need to find balance. And so what I've started doing in the last bunch of years is I take a month of the fall, usually November, and I don't drink. And I still go out and be social and I can drink water and still have great conversations. And, and you know, but all the while I'm, I'm because I need to set myself up for winter and I need, you know, I need to have that like balance in my life. And so it provides a little bit of that balance at a time where things can easily get unbalanced when, with all these other social things. Yeah. And you know, for me, you know, I can say, yeah, you know what? I was a really popular person in school, you know, and, but I wasn't like the cool kid who picked on people. I was friends with everybody because that's just who I am, you know? And, and, you know, the hockey players didn't like the skateboarders, but I was best friends with them all, mm-hmm. you know, and I hung out with them all and I didn't differentiate between anyone. And that's what I can always encourage people to do is like, if you really want to like manifest your life in, in the direction that you want it to go and you want things to work out for you, treat everyone around you as an equal and lift them up because you never know when people that are coming into your life might have a huge impact on your life. Totally. And they all deserve to be treated at a sa- the same level until proven otherwise. That's you know? so beautiful. And I, I have to back you up there too. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why you're one of the first skiers that I've actually had on the podcast is because of, one, of course I respect your skiing, but that's not the reason. Two, you're hilarious and everyone loves you, but that's not the reason. Um, You're one of very few guys that I skied with that actually treated me equally as one of the guys and not competition and not uh, whatever. You're just a chick. And I've watched you do that for many girls coming up. And I truly think that we as the female skiers that have had, gosh, any of the, the luck to have been sort of taken under your wing, we... Oh, a lot to you. I mean, you did it for Angel. You did it for me. I'd love to. Do you remember the the cave air? Totally, one hundred percent. And and I mean, for me, it's it's funny because I guess for for some people that it takes effort to to do that. But that's just the person I've always been, and I think it's a you know it's a direct um, 
correlation yeah, it's between just in your how, blood. It's yeah, who it's you how, are. Was, how I was raised. You weren't trying. It's just who you are. Yeah, it's just who I am. I don't feel like anyone deserves anything less. Do you, do you have? Do you want to tell that story from your perspective? I want to tell it from mine. So I'm just curious what yours was. Um. Well, you know, I just remember that. You know, I mean, obviously that was. We're talking 12 years ago now. No, I don't think 12. That's I. No, sorry. I didn't win the tour until 2005, and then I didn't start with TGR until like 2007 or something. Eight. It would have been 06, because that something was anomaly. Like that. Yeah, it was good, 06. You're good with years. So it was 06. So anyway, I remember you wanted to go hit that air, and I was like, you know what? Like, yes, you are capable of doing that, and I like to see progression of sport and especially on the female side, because I think there's so much room for progression on the female side of the sport. And I felt like you were totally capable of it. And so, yeah, I wanted to be there to like, you know, support and, and, you know, give you stoke and yeah. And just let you know that I had full faith in you. And sure enough, you went and stomped it. But it was huge. I mean, it was huge of you to, it helped me so much that day because, so just to paint the picture, it's like, you know, we all meet at seven in the morning, go up early tram. I had planned to hit the cave air, which is this double stage. I don't know. How big is it in Jackson backcountry? I mean, this, the second step's got to be, uh, 50, 40, 50 feet, something like that. Maybe bigger. I mean, you know, if you probably measured it with a tape measure, it'd probably be closer to 60 or something like that. But yeah, like, for distance maybe. Yeah. But like if, you know, like drop wise, like 40 to 50 feet. Yeah. And you have to air the top. So it's a, an air into the big air. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and most of the guys I was with didn't, didn't think I could, they weren't even going to shoot it. They weren't even going to like put an actual filmer on it. Um, and luckily the intern shot it and, yeah. But as I'm hiking up there, everyone, no one believes that I'm going to go do this. And I have to hurry because the guys want to go elsewhere. And I only have one quick chance if I'm going to do this. And, and Ian's like, do you remember what you said? I don't remember what I said, no. You're like, you're going to stomp the shit out of it. And then no other dude will get to hit it ever again. Because it won't be worthy. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that, yeah. But that's a huge compliment, you know, like basically once a girl does it, it's not worthy for the guys anymore. But I was like, whatever. Yeah. It, and I mean, it meant the world to me. It, it really did. And I don't know how accurate that statement is because it's still worthy to go hit. It's, it's about having fun, right? Our sport's about having fun. But, but what I meant behind that is, is like, you know what? Go prove to all these men who doubt you that you're as capable as them, if not more. And, and, and you went and did it. And you, and you know, you proved me right and yourself right. And you proved a lot of other people wrong. And I love that. And, you know, I'm all about like people proving themselves like, Hey, you know what? Like talk the talk, but walk the walk, you know, like, you know, be a person of action in this world. But you, you empower know? it. You really do empower it. And, and I will support you till the day I die for that reason. Well, like, thank you. And I mean, you know, for me, it's, it wasn't something that, you know, I'm not trying to do anything. No, I'm just, you just, it's just who you are. And that's yeah. the best part. Yeah. And I, and, and, you know, it, it's the same thing with Angel. It's the same thing with Hadley. It's, it's the same mm-hmm. thing with all these girls. It's like, you know what? You girls have a hard time in this industry because everyone doubts you, you know, or at least not everyone, but a lot of people will doubt. They will, they will discredit you before you've actually had a chance to prove yourself. And that's not really fair way to go about it. It's a very male dominated industry, or at least it has been. It's starting to change thanks to girls like yourself and and, and, all that. and guys like yourself that, yeah, that do and, treat everyone equally. And, and you give know, everyone a fair chance. Exactly. And but the the bottom line is is like, you know, everyone deserves a fair chance. It doesn't matter what sex you are or what race you are, you know, like you deserve a chance to prove yourself. And you know, the fact that people write other people off before they even have a chance to prove themselves, you know, like our society is full of people that will write you off just on the way you look or whatever before they even have a conversation with you or get to know you on any level or the way you dress or the way, you know, and to me, that's such a, it's such a toxic way of thinking and it's a toxic way for our society to operate. 
And it's truly sad because what, what's, what's happening to these people that are writing everyone off in their lives is they're missing all these opportunities to engage with potentially with people who will not only impact their life, but maybe dramatically change their life in a very positive light. And, and that's why you got to be... Who did you learn that from? That like from your mom or dad? Or? Uh, I don't know where I learned. I learned that through life. I learned that through experience. I think, yeah, th- my family helped for sure, but I haven't always been, you know, you know, and even back in those days, like, sure, you know what? Like I was giving you um, the, the credit that you deserve and, and, and the, you know, the opportunity that you deserve. But at the same time, I was, you know, at that time in my life, I was, I was young 20s. I, I was like running on ego. You know, and like, sure, I'm not portraying that onto you, but like, that was my motivation. But that's you why know? it was so unique coming from a guy in that place, um, right? A pure, a pure place. So I, I've always, yeah, well, always hey. be on your team for that. So take us back to um, your trajectory. So we left off at you got a film part in Whistler with those guys. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, and no, I we started la- winning contests. Yeah, I started winning contests, and then, like I said, like Dana, Dana Flair, and Ryan Oakton were. You know, they had an opportunity to film with TGR and they put in a good word for me. And then I basically got the call from Josh Nielsen, who was the producer for TGR at the time. And he's like, all right, I'll give you the same opportunity I gave Dana Flair. Come to Jackson, sleep on my couch for the winter and prove yourself. (laughs) And so I was like, "Okay, sweet opportunity. You know, I'm still fully a ski bum at this point. I'm not making much money. I'm working carpentry in the summers and trying to take the winters off. But I hopped in my Oldsmobile Cutlass. (laughs) <laughs> and I drove to Jackson and I spent the next three months there. And, you know, what was really important to me at that time um, was that I go, I go to Jackson and I do, I do something different, you know, at least for me, from what I've seen from all the TGR's movies. There was a lot of things that I'd seen in TGR's films, like, you know, The Smart Bastards and, and, and other lines like this which are all like super worthy lines. And, and, you know, it would have been easy for me to go hit those things like all the other guys that have, have done it before. Um, completely different when someone, when a girl's hitting no, it because okay. you're, ste- you're yeah. stepping up to it, you know, what guys have paved the way for. And, and I think that's like, you know, that's paving the way for, you know, another generation of, of girls. But for me, it was like very important to do different stuff. And so I really, you know, that year in, that we filmed Anomaly, it was like I was looking for stuff that I... I never recalled seeing in a TGR film that spoke to me. And I was able to find quite a bit of that stuff. And um, the winter worked out really well. I remember when you dislocated your hip. Yeah, I dislocated my hip, like, first shot. Like, I tried to ski breakneck. Tried to ski this stupid line down break. And that's, like, the ego, you know, like, that ego running the show. Young. So what made a stupid line at that time? Well, like... You know, young 20-some-year-old, ego's running the show. I went up to breakneck, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to ski, like, the single stage off the top, and then I'm going to hit this double stager, which was, like, like a 30-foot cliff into, like, you know, a 50-foot cliff or something like that. With to, a super flat landing. With a super flat landing. Maybe, like, like freaking <clears throat> pancake flat. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't even know what I was thinking. I just was like, I have so much to prove, and I want to show these TGR guys what I'm capable of. And so I'm going to come out super hot. And like, you know, put it all on the line and roll the dice and see if I can prove like, you know, who I am to these guys. And I failed miserably. I dislocated my hip. It was so gnarly. I almost ended my season. Fortunately, my hip went back in um, and I was able to recover. He was like, my hip dislocated. But then it went back in and he's just laughing. I remember laying there in the bomb hole and like my hip was fully out. And I was wiggling to get out of the bomb hole because I was like, I got to ski down to these guys on one ski. And then as I was wiggling, my hip just went thunk like right back in. Um, You know, I ended up dislocating it even worse than that summer. Um, But anyway, started off like super ego driven, super, you know, hot. And I had to like come full circle and put it all together. And it worked out. You know, I managed to make that season work out. It could have gone a million different ways, but I made it work. Um, I was very, very driven at that point to make this work, this whole like pro skier thing. I was like, I'm this committed to it at this point. I've put years into it now. Um, you know, I've, I've put that whole guiding thing behind me. This is what I'm doing. You know, this is my focus 100%. 
And so anyway, those guys gave me the opportunity to go to Alaska that spring. I had no money. I raised some money through some, some sponsors, uh, went to Alaska, got to shred with Jeremy Jones and Sage and Victoria. And it was just like the most amazing experience of my life. And I remember like coming back from Alaska, my credit cards were maxed. I like had a great season, but it's not like I was getting paid by anyone at this point. I, I had free gear. But I think people don't know that, don't recognize that. The first yeah. chances in TGR doesn't mean you're a pro skier. Exactly. You're just, <laughs> you're you're just still, yeah, you're still trying to make it, right? You're paying to get seen. Yeah, and so I, I was like seriously broke. That summer I worked carpentry, and then I also um, delivered pizzas for Domino's in Whistler, which delivering pizzas for Domino's in Whistler is quite a good gig if you're a young ski bomb because – I would like Friday night, I would bring in like 350 bucks in tips. Wow. And that would be after working an eight hour day of construction. So, you know, I'd have like an almost $500 day or a $500 day. So I pulled myself out of debt pretty quick doing that. And then that summer, you know, uh, the contract offers started coming in from my various sponsors and, uh, and I signed with North Face and Rosinol and Smith and, and, you know, then the next winter, it was like, all right, I'm like, you know, officially a pro skier. But, I mean, you got to also understand, your first contracts from your sponsors are pretty small. And an overnight success took how many years? Yeah, I mean, it took um, a lifetime. Ni- 19, <laughs> and I was like, you know, 24 at that time. So it was, it was five years. That's of, pretty good, actually. Yeah, I mean. It took me six years before I got paid. After yeah. winning the tour, after TGR, so very after Warren Miller. Very yeah. similar. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, it's it, it was, you know, those five years seemed like a long time. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, made it happen. And, you know, and then, yeah, the next year, you know, like, sure, I'm a pro skier, but I'm still working carpentry for years after that in the off season mm-hmm. because, you know, the contracts, those early day contracts aren't, you know very big. And I often say that, you know, your, your later career contracts reflect the skier you were in the early days, the money you maybe deserved back then. But, you know, fast forward a bunch of years and I've managed to make a career out of it. And it's been a really fun adventure and it continues to be. And, you know, I continue to try and, you know, progress myself and, and grow as a human being. And, you know, I've, I've gone through some crazy times. I was married at one point, um, and then got a divorce when I was in Alaska and over the phone, oh my I goodness. broke up with my wife over the phone cause I couldn't handle, um, you know, we were just not a good fit. Let's just leave it at that. But, um, anyway, we broke up over the phone and then it was like the next day it went like bluebird and we had five days in a row of shredding bluebird, like 12 hour days out in the field. And then I wasn't sleeping all night. You know, I was like, lay awake, and I'm thinking about the gnarly line I want to shred in the morning, and then I'm thinking about my failed marriage, and then I'm, you know, it's just bouncing back and forth in my head. And I remember the fi- the fifth day, our photographer, Mark Fisher, gave me an Ambien. He's like, dude, here's an Ambien. Try and sleep on this. And that didn't really make me sleep. It made me, like, in this weird, like, high mindset wandering around my hotel room. And then it was the next morning I broke my femur. Oh, God. And uh, so that was, you know, a whole nother. But that was actually like, I look back at that as like the most important and needed thing that I had happen in my life. Having a divorce and breaking my leg in the same week, I return home to Pemberton. Wife is gone. I've got a broken femur. You want to talk about like life? check whoa. and like Heavy. whoa what are you wh- what's going on in your life how did you get here you just took away both your love skiing and yeah your woman yeah and i'm like it's time to check yourself dude what's going on and i i really started to realize and you know found some 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 books that helped me with this and 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 talking to certain people and and just kind of searching within what were the books um, like, you know, books like The Four Agreements or like The Power of One or Power of Now and, and like, um, you know, different kinds of like self-help books like that that, mm-hmm. you know, kind of help you grow. And um, through all that, I really realized like, all right, you know what? I need to like r- approach this whole thing differently. I need to get back stronger than I ever was. 
but I need to approach this with like way less ego or like almost no ego if I can, you know, and I need, I, I realized that I was doing everything to impress people and I wasn't necessarily doing it for myself. Hmm. And now, since then, since I recovered from that, everything you ever see me do, there's always a moment of reflection before I do it of like, why are you doing this? What is the reason you're doing it? Is this for yourself? Do you really want to do this? Is this something you really want to do? And, and are you doing it for yourself first and foremost? And sure, there's cameras there, but like, you know, is this for you? And if, if the answer is yes, then I go for it. Nice. Um, there was, I think we've all had to learn that the hard way. Yeah. And I think that's part of growing in life. Right. And I think there was, there was one moment that I've had since my broken leg and since kind of trying to reinvent myself that I kind of slipped back into that old mindset. And that was the moment I had the viral crash Mm. falling down a mountain in Alaska. Does it come from fear? Does it come from, Oh I've got to please my sponsors. I got to please the guys behind the camera. Does it come from like when, when those moments of where you lose yourself, like, are- yeah, I think it comes, you get, you just get caught up in the, like, I need to like be the sickest dude and I need to like do the raddest shit, you know, like, and I need my segment to be like the best I've ever put together. And I need to impress people and whatever. So it's outside of you. Yeah. It's like, it's not an inner thing. It's an outer thing. And so it ends up, you know, it ends up clouding your judgment in your brain and and you start skipping steps and making mistakes. And Mm -hmm. it was the same thing that led to my broken leg. And it was the same thing that led to me falling down that mountain. And, and that was like, I remember like coming out of that and I was like, oh, you idiot. You fell into the old trap, the old mindset. Did that help you though on some levels? I mean, that, that had like millions of views, right? Uh, it's only hurt me, I think. Really? Yeah. I mean, at the time I was like, oh, sweet. CNN just called. Like, I'll do an interview with them. Oh, good morning, America. That's cool. Oh, Fox News. All right. I hate Fox News, but sure. I'll get on Fox News. You know, and, and, and like, you know, I did like 30 interviews worldwide in like a day and a half. And it all seemed like, oh, yeah, you know what? Like, maybe, you know, maybe this will help my career. Maybe this is like extra attention and like, you know what? Embrace it, whatever, you know? And so I embraced it. But I think, you know, ultimately it's like what I realized is like it's just me messing up. And like that's not like a really attractive quality. But uh, we all mess up. You, just, all, you just got famous for it. I know. It, it's a human <laughs> trait, but it's not like, I mean, we're held to like this superhero standard, right? Yeah. And so it's not very superhero-esque. I think so, it is because you survived it. And I've seen you do some of the gnarliest stuff I've ever seen. So you're already. Well, I appreciate that. And, and, I, and I hope that a lot of people that like are actual fans of mine and okay, follow what I Okay, I have do. to fan out here for just a second. So sure. there I was in the Whistler backcountry. Yeah, I had followed this guy out there filming, attempting to film for my first time ever in the Whistler backcountry, and he decides he's going to hit Papa Jordan. Oh, yeah, that day. That day. (laughs) So let's just paint the picture for people who don't know what... Well, people might know what Air Jordan is, right? So give us the picture of that day. I mean, Air Jordan's this famous um, double stage line on Whistler mountain. That's kind of looms over top of the peak chair lineup. And it's like, it's a full Hollywood line. And it's like maybe like a 10 to 15 foot air into like a 30 to 40 foot air kind of thing. Crowd pleaser. Yeah. It's a total crowd pleaser. Everyone loves it. Um, I haven't hit it in years. The Papa Jordan, which was named by Dave Basichia and, and Jonathan Moore, who hit it in a treetop film back in 98, 99, on the biggest snow year on record, they hit it and they named it Papa Jordan because it's also like a double stager, but it's very different. It's, it's so a, different. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they kind of, they approached it. Like I would say the smart way they hit like a 20 foot air into it. And then we're able to do a couple turns on the, on the like hanging snow field. And then it's more of like a, like an, 60 to 80 foot rock ride. And if you screw up on that top air, you're going off of cliffs. Oh yeah. You're, you're t- dead. You're, you're, you're taking dead. like the biggest gnarliest fall. It's like probably onto rocks. Like it's you're a, tomahawking off the gnarliest thing. And for it's sure. that first entrance is like a 40 footer to a mandatory huge left turn to not go off that cliff. Yeah. And I mean, I made the call to like do that, that 40 foot entrance into it. Cause I thought it was like, you know, like, 
And I'm the only other athlete out there. And I'm like, oh my God, you're too big for me to carry out by myself. Yeah. Like, please don't do this. <laughs> I came I came into this. I can't yeah. be safety for this. I came into that rock ride way too fast and like skipped down it. And so, th- so wait, just finish it. So it's like 40 footer foot, mandatory, yeah. big sweeping, hard left turn. You better be a fucking good ski racer to yeah. make that turn. And then like in, yeah, 60 to 80 foot rock ride, a rock ride to like this transition. It's pretty flat. Well, that's like a Berkshire an uphill Berkshire or like yeah. a, a reverse Berkshire. And what happened to me is I came into that, that rock ride so fast that I kind of just aired the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But when I finally came down to touch the rock for the rock ride, it was like right in that like crocs of like where the, the rock ends and the tra- the, oh. the crummy transition begins. And, just and so I just like drives. fully pile-drived and double-ejected and tomahawked out. And it was fine. I'm like, so glad you were okay. Because yeah. Again, I- you know, that was like a time in my life where, you know, I was, I was like, I was a different person then. I was driven by different You were willing forces. to die then. I mean, there was a time when all of us were willing to die. Yeah, I, think. I was driven by different I- forces then. I'm, I'm not the same guy now. And, you know, I'm still like looking to do some of the biggest things that, I, you know, I'm probably ever going to do in my career um, as a skier, but it's it's coming from a very different place and a much different motivation. That's really cool. And really so cool. it's um, I'm I'm much happier. I've got like this amazing girl in my life now that is incredible in every way. We're getting married again next uh, summer, and you know, she, it's a testament to how amazing she is because I swore I'd never get married again, but you know, she's totally won me over in that department and I'm so excited to you know spend my life with her everything's great in my life you know like I've got you know amazing friends an amazing family of friends I've got an incredible family I've got this amazing family in the ski community and um, I've got this incredible woman and we have you know a beautiful spot where we live and everything's like absolutely perfect and I'm right where I want to be with my career I've gotten rid of the heli and the sled bullshit because that was never who I was. I was always the ski tourer really? that I grew you up. Really? You got rid of it? Like, but you're known for these big heli segments in Yeah, but I'm Alaska. not doing that stuff anymore. Since I'm doing, when? Did you... Since two years ago. So you I climbed do... everything that you have for the last two years in TGR yeah. movies? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Taking some chairlifts on some cultural trips. But yeah, it's been all it's been all foot power for me, um, and you know that's more in tune with who I was as a skier, and so I'm like, you know, you get to your mid thirties and you're like, all right, you know, like what am I doing that's new, that's different, and like going out on my snowmobile to film in the Pemberton backcountry or going to Alaska to film out of a heli is not new and different. It's the same old shit that I've been doing for a decade. Mm-hmm. I need to do something different for myself to inspire myself, but also for like anyone who cares to follow what I do. You know, I, I, I believe that my job is to inspire people to get out and do fun things. And, um, and I feel like what I'm doing now is way more inspirational for myself and for potentially the people that are following me, at least that's what most people tend to tell me these days. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a way more rich experience. And, you know, yeah, sure, instead of doing 30 lines on a heli trip, I'm doing like two or three on a hiking trip. But those two or three are like, you know, you work for them, you put everything you you're have into them. You're intimately connected They're, with that mountain. You're now. intimately connected and you're telling a story, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that resonates with people a lot more and it resonates a lot more with me. And so, you know, I'm excited to continue to take that um, to new levels for myself. Yeah, so let's speak to that. Like, um, we're here at a Protect Our Winners Summit. Yeah. And you've been one of the most vocal people here. Um, You read a lot. You're so educated in this space. I mean, what do you have to share with us on, on all of it? I mean, I don't even know where to start. I mean, get you going here. I'm very passionate about the climate, um, mainly because I see the impacts of it and I see what it, what's happening to our planet. But I also like I educate myself on the issue and education. Knowledge is power. Right. And because I have all the stats and science and I've fully educated myself and I also trust in the fact that like 
the 97 to 99% of scientists on this planet who all collectively agree that us humans are causing climate change and that we have we have set in motion things that we don't even know what the repercussions are going to fully be, but we know it's not going to be super good. And we need to make change now in order for future generations to have a planet that even resembles the planet that we've been lucky enough to grow up and adventure in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not a father, but I'm an uncle and, and I, I have a respect and appreciation for my fellow human race. And you know what? The future generations are being born into this world and they didn't create this mess, but they're going to have to live with it. And so it's our responsibility to try and make a difference. And none of us are perfect. I'm by no means perfect. You know, I travel a bunch and I did do a lot of heli skiing and I did do a lot of snowmobiling in my life. I've burnt a ton of carbon, but you know, it's easy to just call yourself a hypocrite and do nothing or just shrug it off like you don't care because whatever, you know, that takes too much effort. Because there is no perfect solution. Yeah, because there is no perfect. But it's it's a lot it's a lot harder to like go, you know what, like I want to stand up for this. I'd and rather I, do something than nothing. Yeah. I'd rather be imperfect and... And doing something, do something. Yeah. And whether that's like talking to school kids at high schools or, you know, eating way less meat in my life, um, uh, you know, educating myself on like where my food comes from, like food is a big one. You know, tonight we had the option to eat fish tacos, but I know that those fish tacos come from Asian fish farms. They're destroying the rivers and oceans in that area of the world. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy into that system. I'll take the veggie tacos instead because you know what? They're still delicious mm -hmm. and I ate beans. I still got my protein and I didn't pay into this system that's, that's, totally screwing up our oceans, you know, and oceans are our life. Like so we live what do you ocean. say when to people who are like, well, that is how I make my living. So for example, I just said no to going to Japan this year. Right. Um, it's part of my job. I feel like skiing is part of my job. Yeah. Traveling therefore is part of my job. But I said no, because they, they say giving up one uh, trip on overseas. Um, overseas is one of the best ways that you can make change. Totally. Um, but what do you say to people that it, everyone would like to change and like to do things differently, but oftentimes the way people make money to feed their families is, is, is part of, you know, doing something detrimental to the planet. You've had it in your own family. Yeah. I mean, I, I think people, they don't, they shouldn't get so caught up in that. They shouldn't get so caught up in the fact that like, what they're doing today in society is having an impact and they, they don't know what to do to change that. So they're not going to do anything. Because the bottom line is like we all have a carbon footprint on this planet. We all have an impact. And some more than others, for sure. But you can have, you can do conscious things in your day-to-day -day life, whether it's your diet or the way you vote or, you know, a multitude of other things that are going to have big impact. And it's, and it's really sad. I'm Canadian. And it's political in Canada, but it's very political in America. And it needs to be more of a bipartisan thing. It, needs, it is. We need to, like, we need Fresh to... Fresh air. Yeah, we need to <laughs> collectively not. all have more of an open mind. Because right now, it's either you're this or you're this. Mm -hmm. You know, you're right or you're left. And it's like, why can't we all meet in the middle somewhere and collectively realize that, you know There are things what? bigger than Republican or Democrat. Yeah, and this is something that the scientists are around the world, 97 to 99% of the scientists around the world, depending on which study you read, it's a high percent, to, to some extent, are, they're all telling us that this is this and single biggest agreement. issue of our time. And... You know, something like the Paris Agreement. Every country in the world is signed on to this now. Every developed country in the world is signed on to it. Except USA. Apparently, two countries that weren't, Nicaragua, because they didn't think it was strong enough, and Syria, because they got some issues going on, they have both now signed on to it. Every but America's pulled out. So here country. we have one of the most carbon... Uh, dominant countries, one of the biggest carbon polluters on the planet is not even a part of this like thing that we so desperately need to change. And you know, it's it there there all the technology's there now. That's the beautiful thing. The solutions are starting to happen. 
And they're there like, this is actually possible. We can do this. It's not all doom and gloom and like, what are we going to do? Like economics are there mm-hmm. to make it possible. Like the economics for, for fossil fuels aren't there anymore. It's mm-hmm. for green energy and, and, you know, driving electric cars and all these sorts of things that are going to have a huge impact on how much carbon we're putting into the atmosphere. And I mean, for instance, in 2016, of the world's coral reefs died Mm -hmm. in one year. Mm -hmm. And that's because water temperatures, coral cannot handle a two degree Celsius temperature rise. And that's what we're seeing in the oceans in many places. And so the coral's dying. The Great Barrier Reef, the biggest living organism on the planet, lost 38% in 2016. And they're saying in the next 10 years, we're going to lose 80% of the Great Barrier Reef. No, they, that, it's officially dead. They yeah. made the official announcement. Yeah. And so, I mean, we're, we're looking at like huge detrimental things to the, our, our fishing industry. And, you know, the ocean survives off of that. And we survive off the ocean. Mm-hmm. So to think that this doesn't affect us and right. that we're not, we're, we're, we can just go on living our daily lives and not think about it. It's ridiculous. And to think that like being green means that you got to be a hippie or a Democrat or something is false. You can be a Republican and still care about the environment. You can be, you know, someone who's considered a redneck and still care about the environment. Heck, you know, I was a redneck for much of my childhood. You know, we, we can all care about the environment because let's face it, it's the one thing that we collectively all have. We all live on and this depend planet. depend on. <laughs> and depend on. And we all live on this planet together. You know, we, we need this planet to survive. We, we're not moving to Mars. So I think know? we're kind of preaching to the choir, anyone that might be listening here. So maybe, give, yeah. give me some examples. Um, you brought up some really good points this tonight about how other countries are, are making change with multiple party votes and well yeah i mean i think the political system in the u.s makes it really difficult because it really polarizes people it's like have we really come very far from the civil war Yeah, we war? think we're choosing from the one the lesser of two evils we yeah feel really powerless yeah but I mean, in canada it's, it's not as bad and nope. in other countries it's not no canada's not as bad and and you know in, in the u.s what it creates is this huge division it's 50 percent over here and 50 percent over here and if you're this side you don't agree with this side no matter what no matter what they say Mm-hmm. And it's like, whoa, 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 let's have an open mind. Because, yeah, in a country like Canada, we have multiple parties. And so what happens is that no one in Canada really has political affiliation. We might vote one election for this party and the next ele- election for that party. I am not conservative, liberal, or any of the above. I am whatever I feel is the best person at that time to vote for. So and give us a, an example. Well, okay, for for an example... Like what happened with your Green Party? Okay, so in the BC election, um, there, there are two main parties in BC, the Liberal Party and, and the New Democrat Party. And the Liberal Party are very, like, almost... They're very conservative, to say the least. You know, they're very, they're very much into, like, fossil fuel expansion and these sorts of things. And the New Democrat Party is very, like, social, you know? Like we might call them socialists. Yes, in our- ish, yeah. Wait, I know that's a scary word in America, right? But it, it sure. That's how far it and, goes on that And then, side. yeah, and then Green Party is like a very much more environmentally focused, like you know, uh, environmental to economy. You know, like green economy, and and they feel like that's the future. And so most people were saying, all right, you know, in BC we're very, you know, we want we love our environment. It's a beautiful place. We want to protect it. And so for most people, they're like, we got to get these liberals out of office and out of power. So the only option is to vote for the new Democrats. And I went... Meaning the lesser of the two evils. The Don't give the, up your vote on the yeah, little guy, the yeah. little green party. The little guy is... a waste is, of your vote. Exactly. That the little guy's throwing away your vote away. And right. I'm sure you guys hear it in the States too. The little guy's going to throw your vote away. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. I decided to say, screw all that rhetoric. I'm voting for who I want to vote for, which was the green party. In Turns our case, out, in, in the U.S., that would have been Bernie Sanders. Sure. Um, and it turns out how the election came out is it was something like 48 seats to the liberals, 47 seats to the new Democrats, and the Green Party ended up with three seats. 
And so now all of a sudden the Green Party, actually, even though they're the little guy, have all the power because whoever they decide to affiliate with is going to be the winner of the election. And they can also decide like, hey, you know what, if I'm going to affiliate with you, you've got to follow some of our policy. And, you know, and so they they decided to go with the New Democrats because the New Democrats are definitely more in line with their views. And they overthrew the liberal government. It's just such a beautiful example of even though it seems like you're throwing away your vote, even though it seems, you know, for everything that you you hear on the outside again, you follow your intuition, you follow your truth, and yeah. it, it presented itself in such a beautiful way that you never could have guessed going in. When people tell you right now, we're screwed. And, I mean, for most of the... Most things that are published these days say that we don't have a chance. We're already past that tipping point. We're screwed. And if we decide as a collective that that's the truth, then it is. But for the people that are going to say, no, that's, I, I don't feel that that's the truth, then we can create a new truth. Exactly. I mean, you know, we can, I mean, we can do anything if we band together. And, and it's, it's this division that's creating all these roadblocks. It's this division that is not allowing the U.S. To, to progress. And, you know, if the U.S. doesn't progress and if they, they stop becoming the world superpower, they stop becoming the world leader, they start to um, fall behind countries like China or whoever it may be. And that is, I know, something that not anyone in this country really wants for this country. You all want to see your country be the best it can be. But the only way that's ever going to happen is if people start to think a little bit more bipartisan and stop affiliating so much with one side or the other so diehardly and actually just come with an open mind and see what the real issues are. And the fact that this whole like climate change thing is even a political thing in the first place yeah. is ridiculous. It is. It's the it's the single biggest issue facing humanity. It should not be a political issue. When the US military says it's the single biggest threat to the America and yet the government is not, it's because the oil companies and the banks own the government and they're paying them off. People like the Koch brothers own the government and they're paying them off. You can't trust that system. That system is flawed. So you need to all stop being so divided and brainwashed by that system because they're telling you to be divided. They're saying you got to be this or you got to be that. And we all need to stand up and say, you know what? I don't want to be either of those things. I want to be something else. And that something else is a collective America that can succeed and tackle these big issues like climate change. So... Now you're using your voice for this bigger thing. Are you getting pushback at all? Are, are people telling you, look, stick to skiing. We don't want to hear about politics. Or stick to what you're good at. Like, are you getting... Uh, of course. Of course I'm getting that. And of course, there's always going to be those haters in life. And I think one of the things we learned this weekend here at the PAL Summit is, is like, you got to put yourself out there. You got you to gotta be vulnerable if you're ever going to you know, have any chance at making a change. And you know what? For every hater, there's hundreds of other people that have my back. And so it's easy to focus on the negative and, and let that control your mind and let that stop you from being a voice. But really what you need to do is focus on the positive and also, you know, try and like maybe, you know, see the negative's perspective and then also engage with them in a way that's like, hey, you know what? Like, I, I get what you're saying. I travel a lot. I'm not perfect, but none, none of us are. And does that mean we shouldn't try? Mm -hmm. You know, and, 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 and the old saying, like, kill them with kindness. You know, anyone who ever hates on me, I just, I just come back with like, hey, you know what? Like, I get what you're saying, but like, let's, let's be real here. Like, you know, I'm not claiming to be perfect, but I, but I am passionate and, and I, if I had the opportunity to drive electric cars and fly in electric planes, and when I turn on my lights in my house, it's powered by the sun or the wind, I'm all for all that, and that's what I want, and that's what I'm really driving for. But the only way we're going to get that is if we collectively, as a society, decide that that's what we want. 
and we we force change from the top down and you know the economics are going to do a lot for us because clean energy is becoming cheaper than fossil fuels so that's going to do a lot for us but we also need to make that collective decision together and use that, our voices to say we care about it yeah and, and tell our leaders that we it, care about it and it doesn't matter what your political opinion is this isn't a political issue this is this is a fundamental issue for civilization and life. Humankind. Humankind. Yeah. There are different races and languages and countries all banding together to, to try and make fix this problem. And that's what the Paris Agreement is. This is like drop all of your opinions about which political party or race. We don't have time or, for that. Yeah, yeah. The, the, none of that matters. Collectively, us 7 billion people need to band together or else we're going to destroy this planet that that helps sustain us for future generations. Absolutely. Okay, two more quick questions. Sure. Um, what advice would you give to, I think a lot of men are looking for better male role models. If you were a dad right now, like what advice would you give to a dad? I would say doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. What do you mean? Um, people doubt themselves. They constantly doubt whether or not they can achieve their dreams or their goals or make a difference mm. on a certain issue like climate change or whatever it may be. People are filled with doubt and it prevents them from living their lives the way they want to live their lives. And they end like up... they wouldn't be good enough. Yeah, they wouldn't be... Or, or they would fail and they're scared to fail. Mm. But I tell you what, failure has only ever allowed me to grow as a human, as I talked about with my broken leg or a divorce or whatever it may be. Those are moments I look back in my life as pivotal moments of self-growth and super positive and things that needed to happen. So failure is a good thing. You need to fail to learn and to grow. So don't be afraid to fail. And if you're afraid to fail, you're never going to grow. You're never going to live your life the way you want to live your life because you're never going to have the guts to go out and try. And so, yeah, doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. Don't be afraid to fail, fail and go out and try. Another thing, like I mentioned before, would be be a team player. You know, lift up all those around you. You know, when, when, we, when I work with TGR, for instance, we go out into the field. Skiing is a very selfish thing. It's, you know, very, like, especially like when you're trying to make a ski segment for a film. It's like a very independent thing. But it's not. We're, in a, we're a team out there. And I want the other skiers to succeed just as much as me. And I want the filmers to crush it on their job because that helps us. And, and everyone collectively needs to crush it at their job and do a, do a fantastic job. And what that end result is, is that we make a much better ski film. It's not that just my part's better. It's that collectively we've all made something better together as a family. And that is going to drive much more success for all of us and if we all have success, we're all going to be way better off than if I just have independent success. It's the same thing with my friends or my family. You know, lift each other up. You know, I think in society, we've, we've, we've entered this realm of everyone's competing against each other. Mm -hmm. You're competing against your coworkers, your, even your family, your siblings, um, your friends, your neighbors. You don't even know who your neighbors are, but you see that they got a fancy new car or that they, you know, their house is nicer than yours or whatever it may be. And we're all competing against each other instead of trying to like help each other. And if we all collectively used our skill sets, because we're all good at something and helped each other, we would all like benefit way more. And we would actually all like do way better than just trying to like keep up with the Joneses and compete against one another. So if we all like acted more like a tribe, like whether it's your neighborhood or your community or your circle of friends or whatever, and you all are helping each other, you're going to be way more successful in life. And that, that stems right down to like every person you meet, give them, lift them up, make them feel good about themselves, you know, help them succeed if the, if the um, opportunity comes. And in turn, you will succeed much more in life. That's and, so beautiful. And you will, you will in turn like have a much more fulfilled and happy life and it'll be full of people that love you and that, that will do anything for you and vice versa. So Awesome. The last question I was going to ask is uh, what advice would you give to your younger self at a time that he really needed it? Uh, you know, like I mentioned before, like um, nobody, nobody really cares. This is, this is for you. This is your life. You know, do this for you. Drop the ego. Don't, don't do this for anyone but yourself. 
And, and, and if you're not doing it for yourself, you better switch. You better switch it up. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, I, I like to think I made a lot of good decisions in life and I, and I, I followed my heart and I chased my dreams and I wasn't afraid to fail. And that all led to good things. But, you know, there's a lot of things I've learned in the recent years of my life, like what I just touched on um, with lifting others up. Back then, I was more of competing against everyone and, you know, trying to prove myself as like the best or whatever it may be and really ego driven. And I would just tell myself like, hey, you know what, drop all that and you're going to be happier and you're going to be more successful in the end of the day. Awesome. So. Thanks, Ian. My pleasure. Safe travels. We love you. Thanks so much. Right on. Wow. Ian McIntosh. I am so lucky to call you a friend. Be sure to check out Ian on Instagram or Twitter and let him know that you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope the show inspired you today somehow to show up for something you've been thinking about for a long time. What I mean by that is those those ideas, the art projects, the writing projects, that activity that you've been wanting to check out for so long, but you just haven't made the financial commitment or the time commitment to check it out. These these nagging uh, ideas are the things that are worth showing up for because they have something to teach you and they're calling for a reason. Show up and find out why. Until then, see you in the mountains, unicorns.